Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's very nice to see you all here this evening. My name is Jeremy Horder, the head of the department here, and uh, also someone with a, a professional interest in the criminal law. Uh, so I'm looking forward very much to this evening's lecture. Uh, I'm sure you all are with such a fascinating title as that, or so you should be. Um, and it's my job, uh, I'm very pleased to say, honoured to say, to introduce the speaker, the lecturer this evening, Professor Stuart Green. Now, Stuart is here on a Leverhulme visiting professorship. Now, these are uh, very hotly competed for across all disciplines, um, not just law. So we are extraordinarily fortunate that uh, Stuart has chosen to come here to the LSE, to the law department, um, during the tenure of his Leverhulme uh, professorship. And uh, the lecture that he gives is really one of the high points of his visit. Um, and so it's, it's a particular pleasure to be able to welcome him this evening. Stuart, um, in, I was going to say his uh, daytime job, but that doesn't seem quite right, but his, his more permanent employment is at the University at Rutgers, where he's a distinguished professor. And he is a distinguished professor on the basis of a long-standing interest, in particular, um, in property offences. So, uh, in some sense, quite a long distance from what we're hearing this evening. Um, but he made his reputation, if I could put it that way, uh, on the basis of two groundbreaking works on the nature of the criminal law. Um, property offences, uh, when he tried to look at them in a theoretical and moral way that no one had done before. And then, subsequent to that, a much uh, a, a, a larger, more ambitious and better known work called 13 Ways to Steal a Bicycle, uh, in which he analyzes the criminal law uh, in a way that takes it forward from its very uh, property-based thinking that it had um, uh, hitherto and to that point been uh, focused around during the 19th and 20th centuries. And he moved on the concept of theft and deception to something more appropriate for an electronic age. So really, uh, for someone to move from uh, the property offences and to the sexual offences is, at least in the world, the small world of criminal lawyers, uh, a relatively unusual and rare jump. So it's with a particular uh, interest and fascination uh, that I am able to welcome you um, to hear this lecture by Stuart on reconstructing the law of voyeurism and exhibitionism. And I don't suppose we'll hear one mention of the word theft, but you never know. Stuart. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy, for that nice introduction, and thank you to the Leverholm Trust and to LSE for uh, hosting me this uh, memorable uh, spring, uh, and, and to my colleagues in the, in the department there. Um, so I want to look this evening at two under-theorized, uh, relatively neglected, uh, and interrelated, and I hope interesting, offenses uh, of voyeurism and exhibitionism, part of a, a, a much larger project uh, on, um, on sexual offenses. The, the idea, what have I done? The, getting feedback. The idea of the book is to think comprehensively about the sexual offenses, both consensual and non-consensual, uh, and to see to what extent certain concepts uh, and themes run or, or fail to run through uh, that body of, of law. Um, so this is really just a piece of, of a larger study. Uh, I want to begin with I want to begin with a very English tale, uh, a tale of Lady Godiva 
the 11th century Anglo-Saxon noblewoman who lived with her husband, Lord Leofric, in the, in the village of Coventry. According to a legend dating to as early as the 13th century, Godiva, who was concerned about the harsh tax burden that her husband had placed on uh, his uh, subjects, uh, repeatedly appealed to him for their relief. And finally, uh, after um, a, a long uh, a protest from her, Lord Leofric said, all right, Godiva, if you will uh, ride naked through the streets of Coventry, I will lift the burden on taxes. Now, what that says about their marriage and uh, their relationship is something that uh, some scholars have addressed, but I'm going to leave that to the side um, this evening. So the next day, um, Godiva got up on the horse, covered only by her lustrous long hair, and rode down the streets, uh, down the main street of Coventry. And according to the legend, or at least one version of the legend, legend, uh, a proclamation was issued that all persons should stay indoors and shutter their windows during Godiva's ride. Uh, according to an alternative version of the story, the people stayed uh, indoors voluntarily, sheltered behind closed doors as a gesture of respect and appreciation for her activities on their behalf. At the end of his wife's ride, Lord Leofric made good on his promise and announced that the tax burden on his subjects would indeed be lifted. Now, a subplot in the story, which comes about a century later in the history of the tale, involves a tailor known forever after as Peeping Tom. Um, Peeping Tom was unable to constrain or restrain his curiosity, his sexual curiosity, about seeing a naked woman ride down the middle of the street. And while everyone else in the town was shuttered behind windows, uh, Tom uh, drilled a hole in the shutters and, and, and watched Godiva as she went down the street. For his troubles, he was subsequently struck blind uh, or dead, according to another version of the story, uh, and, um, uh, and so he got his just desserts, or maybe more than his just desserts. The hero of the story, of course, is Godiva. She's been memorialized in sculpture and painting and, of course, a luxury brand of Belgian chocolates. The villain of the story, needless to say, is Peeping Tom, uh, who, uh, unable to constrain his curiosity, exploits Godiva's selfless act and uh, is shamed and punished for his, his, his conduct. Tom, whose name is still used today uh, as uh, to refer to a particular criminal offense and to refer to a particular form of sexual deviancy. Now, viewed through the lens of criminal law, the Lady Godiva Peeping Tom story looks considerably more ambiguous than this conventional reading of the story would suggest. To prove the case against Tom for voyeurism, the state would typically need to show that uh, not only he that did he peep to obtain sexual gratification, but that he violated Godiva's expectation of privacy in doing so. One would think, though, that riding naked down the streets of the main street of town, uh, one would not have a particularly strong expectation of privacy. Um, however, if there really was a proclamation telling everyone to stay indoors behind shuttered windows, then arguably Godiva did have a reasonable expectation of privacy, and perhaps under that standard, uh, Tom would be liable. 
to prove the case against Lady Godiva for exhibitionism or indecent exposure, and I'll use the terms interchangeably, the state would have to show that at least part of, or at least some of Godiva's private parts were visible under her long hair. Now, the, the, one of the problems that this uh, work like this presents is that these offenses are defined in different ways in different jurisdictions. So some jurisdictions require that there be an intent to arouse or gratify sexual desire. Some provide that the defendant must uh, intend to cause affront. And a good number of statutes, in fact, a majority in U.S. jurisdictions, require no intent at all. It's enough to expose oneself um, uh, in an inappropriate manner. One point at least is clear that the two offenses are mutually exclusive. That is, that if Godiva was indeed engaged in exhibitionism, then uh, Peeping Tom could not have been engaged in voyeurism and, and, and vice versa. It's also quite possible, of course, that neither committed an offense. Uh, now, the, let me go back. The, the legend of, of Lady Godiva and Peeping Tom raises a host of intriguing questions about sexual politics and marital relations, social class and noblesse oblige, deviance and normalcy, and the, and the link between public and private, the line between public and private. Um, but I'm not going to talk about most of those issues. I'm going to focus on the crimes, the specific offenses of voyeurism and exhibitionism. And I think they're particularly worth looking at in conjunction with each other, together, because the two offenses together mark out and mutually reinforce the borders of our ever-changing and culturally variable understanding of what is public and, and private. In voyeurism, the offender views his victim's private sexual activities without her consent. In indecent exposure, the offender forces his victim to view his own sexual activities without her consent. So the interest in, and rights at stake in the two offenses are in some sense complementary. As Thomas Nagel has observed, we have an obligation of mutual restraint concerning persons' private and inchoate spaces. The public-private boundary, he says, faces in two directions, keeping disruptive material out of the public arena and protecting private life from the crippling effects of the external gaze. So there is a certain reciprocal relation, but I'm going to argue that in fact, the two offenses reflect significant asymmetries, that, there are, that they're not mere images of each other, that in fact um, we have a quite different approach to voyeurism from that which we take to uh, exhibitionism. Um, so while... Um, so th th this, this is a painting by Picasso... Uh, involving Susanna and the elders, an apocryphal story uh, in which you can see the voyeurs are, wa are watching uh, Susanna in her private space. Um, this is a very popular, as I'll show later, this is a very popular subject for painters, the idea of painting a beautiful woman uh, who is being exposed in her nakedness seems to be one that's irresistible to a whole range of painters, mostly male but female as well. The act of public indecency, on the other hand, reflects a much more variable kind of concept, much more sensitive to cultural variation, um, much messier, much more attuned to the specific circumstances in which such exposure occurs. And to the extent I have time, I'll try to work through a number of different uh, contexts in which exhibitionism occurs. Now, quickly, we, we can talk about exhibitionism and, uh, uh, and voyeurism as psychological concepts, both are considered to be paraphilia in, in the DSMV, 
Um, we can, I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, certainly someone could suffer from one of those conditions without committing the crime, and, certain, and no doubt that one could commit the crime without suffering from one of those conditions. We could also talk about voyeurism and exhibitionism as cultural uh, phenomena. Uh, we use the terms to refer to a sort of trend that we see in our society in which congressmen from New York expose themselves uh, to young women and have to leave Congress because of it, in which people read websites and engage in other behaviors, in which privacy seems to be, uh, well, if, if not a thing of the past, then at least something quite different from what privacy used to be considered. So we live in, a, in what people have called a voyeuristic or an exhibitionistic age. I'm not going to really talk about that either, except to the extent that those changing mores do tend to inform our understanding or ought to inform our understanding of these offenses. In addition, I think there's, a, there's something of a generational shift. Studies show that young people, teenagers in the U.S., for example, more than 20% regularly or with some regularity engage in sexting behavior, uh, something that for people of my generation or older is kind of hard to understand, except perhaps for Anthony Weiner. Um, so uh, these, these, these are changing mores, changing norms, and we need to... Uh, uh, we need to recognize that as we uh, try to assess their, uh, their, their moral content and their criminality. All right. Now, my focus, of course, is going to be on voyeurism and exhibitionism as offenses. Again, though, as I said, they're defined in different ways in different jurisdictions. It's not always so easy to uh, generalize about how they should be defined, but I'll do the best I can. So the question I want to ask is, why ought we, or what justifies the criminalization of these acts? And a good place to start is a masterwork by uh, uh, Joel Feinberg, who uh, seeks to describe what he calls the moral limits of the criminal law, offering a number of different uh, approaches or a number of different concepts that are sort of building blocks in assessing the moral content of criminal offenses. Now, I don't suggest that Feinberg is right about everything, and there are other ways to look at it, but I think that Feinberg's basic approach uh, which is itself is an elaborate extension of Millian uh, liberal harm principle is, 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 a, is, a, is a good, uh, uh, provides a good structure for thinking about these issues. Again, my project is mostly from a liberal libertarian kind of perspective. Um, it's not really possible to incorporate all of the different approaches, including, of course, the feminist uh, queer approaches uh, to the problem. I'll be happy to, to talk about those to the extent that I can uh, if people have questions. But the, the general approach is certainly a liberal kind of libertarian perspective that I'm taking. Although what I hope to do is, is sort of less normative and more uh, analytical. I hope to at least shed some light. Even if you don't agree with some of my normative principles, I hope at least to shed some light on the concepts, the analysis of the concepts themselves. So Feinberg offers three basic building blocks of moral content in criminal offenses. Uh, one we call harmfulness, the idea that uh, in order to criminalize an act, that act ought to cause significant setbacks to interest or setbacks to well-being in a different formulation. Um, and without that, this, the state really has no authority to invoke its most uh, significant uh, sanctions uh, against its citizens. In addition, we can talk about uh, an alternative to harm, more controversial than the harm principle, the so-called offense principle. And the idea is that even if an act 
is insufficiently harmful. In some cases, it might be offensive. It might not cause a setback to interest, and yet it causes a significant offense. And so, according to Feinberg, in some circumstances, in more limited circumstances, we can criminalize those acts as well. But underlying both harmfulness and offensiveness is the notion of wrongfulness, that even if acts are harmful, they must still be wrongful in order to be criminalized. We require that in a retributive system of criminal law, one that requires some form of culpability um, before we can criminalize an act, or at least it acts that wrongfulness requirement acts as a side constraint, as some theorists have put it, on uh, criminalization. That is, it's a necessary if not sufficient condition. All right, so what I want to do is sort of work through the wrongs, the harms, the offense, to the extent that I have time, of uh, voyeurism and exhibitionism, beginning with wrongs. And I want to look first at the wrongs that underlie the concept, well, first, of uh, 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 voyeurism, but also uh, of exhibitionism as well. Now, both voyeurism and exhibitionism find some moral content in deep-rooted cultural, and perhaps even instinctive norms. Every society has concepts of privacy, modesty, shame, and disgust, according to which certain aspects of a person's life are considered beyond the scrutiny of others. These inform both voyeurism and exhibitionism. So not only, so not only does uh, one have the right not to, be, um, uh, not to be seen naked without one's permission, but uh, one arguably has a right not to see others' nakedness without one's permission or consent or at least assumption of risk. So they, they are, in that sense, reciprocal norms. The idea that uh, modesty and uh, privacy um, are universal is one that is addressed um, by uh, Donald Brown, among others, who says that at least the idea of, uh, uh, of, um, of having... Um, uh, of copulation itself is, seems to be a universal norm, that throughout every society that we know about, copulation is done in private. The extent to which those norms can be extended to other related acts, and, uh, other, other forms of sexual behavior, and possibly ex- excretory acts, and also possibly nudity, is a bit more controversial. Those norms are, are, are much less universal, particularly nudity, which... Um, uh, in, some, in some societies is not particularly reflected. But in our society, we have pretty strong norms about those behaviors. Okay, so those are, those are sort of general uh, background principles. Let's talk specifically about voyeurism. If you look historically at how voyeurism was justified, it was originally, at least as late as the end of the 19th century, it was looked at as a form of trespass and prosecuted as such. There was no specific offense of voyeurism. Rather, voyeurism was regarded as a, a part of a more generic uh, offense of, uh, of, of trespass. Starting in the, the late 19th century, uh, really, I think, uh, uh, paralleling a famous law review article uh, by Brandeis and Warren in which they argued for a, a, a conception of privacy, we begin to see a shift of course, not only in the law of voyeurism, in other areas of the law as well, but in voyeurism we see a shift away from the notion of trespass and more towards a notion of privacy. And we can see in statutory law we often see a reference to a violation of privacy. Um, now, but I think privacy, privacy is a very complex concept. Uh, it doesn't necessarily adequately explain the notion of what's violated by the voyeur. 
Um, for example, why don't we treat somebody who engages in oral, A-U-R-A-L, uh, uh, eavesdropping as a voyeur? There's something perhaps just etymological, but I think something deeper than that that suggests that voyeurism involves vision uh, rather than uh, listening. Uh, similarly, the notion of privacy often conjures up an idea of information that should be private, but yet voyeurism doesn't really seem to involve uh, information so much. Imagine a case in which uh, a, a, a lover uh, is uh, peeping on his lover without her consent, or a physician who's treating uh, a patient is peeping on her without her consent, even if they don't obtain any new information by doing so, we would still, I think, say that uh, the victim's rights were being violated. Okay, so I said that a lot of uh, great artists have used the story of Susanna and the elders as a subject. Uh, Here we have a number of paintings um, uh, that illustrate that by Veronese, Rembrandt, Tintoretto, and Van Dyck. Um, in each of them to different degrees and reflecting their own historical circumstances, uh, they show a viola- something like a violation of uh, Susanna's rights, although in some cases it's, more, it's clearer than others. If you look at more modern treatments, particularly by Thomas Hart Benton and Picasso, you see, I think, a more uh, a stronger, uh, more direct uh, indication of the kind of violation. The, the painting in the lower right um, is the only one by a female a painter, uh, uh, Gentileschi. Uh, I don't know, I mean, she, the, Susanna in that, in that painting looks uh, rather pained, perhaps more pained than um, she does in some of the others, although I think Benton's uh, Susanna is also looks like she's being violated. Well, what's the significance of these paintings? Why, why am I focusing on them? Well, I think that what they suggest is that uh, voyeurism involves more than just a violation of privacy, or at least privacy in the informational sense, but that it involves a kind of um, um, a, a, a violation of, um, uh, of autonomy, of, of, of specifically sexual autonomy. Um, and um, almost a physical invasion of one's private space, a domination over a subject or an objectification of the, of, of the victim. Um, I think that's the, 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 the better way to understand the, the core wrong that we see in uh, voyeurism. Um, now, one thing, though, that distinguishes the, the violation or infringement of sexual autonomy that occurs in voyeurism from other kinds of offenses which involve a violation of uh, sexual autonomy is that it's a furtive act. It's not an act like sexual assault. It's not an act like rape in which the victim is directly confronted by the offender, but it's an act that usually occurs uh, without the victim's knowledge or often occurs without the victim's knowledge. Um, So the question is how that affects our analysis. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a a moment. Um, But I want to turn now to exhibitionism and look briefly at the wrong that we see in the case of exhibitionism, having talked about the wrong that we see in the case of voyeurism. Historically, what's the point of this? I don't know. I thought it was funny. Um, It says any of these guys look like the peeping Tom. The the notion is that it's a a furtive act, that it's it's occurring uh, sometimes with the victim's knowledge and sometimes without. 
All right, talk a little bit about exhibitionism. Historically, there was no specific offense of exhibitionism prior to the 20th century. What we had instead was a generic offense of nuisance. Exhibitionism was prosecuted under nuisance. So that might be one way to think about exhibitionism, but the problem is that nuisance is really a, uh, is a legal category. It doesn't really give us very much moral content. I think we have to look somewhere else. Some other places that we might look are the notion of obscenity. Um, we might look at the notion of uh, immodesty. Anita Allen has written extensively about voyeurism in that context. Um, but I don't think that's going to help very much in terms of justifying criminalization. Um, obscenity, again, seems to be a kind of legal category. It doesn't have a lot of uh, uh, content of its own. Um, I don't think it's going to give us what we need in terms of justifying the criminalization. One possibility is the notion of disgust. Now, this has been a concept that uh, a lot of commentators have written about lately. Martha Nussbaum, in particular, has really written persuasively about the misuses of disgust uh, in justifying criminal law. For example, the criminalization of sodomy until very recently was justified largely because uh, of what was regarded as disgust. And as Nussbaum points out, uh, it's really been sort of misused the, the, the idea that uh, is the fact that something is regarded by many people in society as disgusting doesn't provide a very good justification for punishment. Another approach would be to think about what Feinberg calls disquietude. And I think it captures something very distinctive about, and I don't know that this picture captures disquietude, but the notion is that um, it preempts our attention. When you're confronted by somebody who is naked or having sex, when you don't expect it and when you don't want it, you're, you're both attracted and repelled at the same time. You want to watch it. Uh, the usual sexual impulses that we repress most of our daily lives um, are, 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 are tested. We want to watch. We don't want to watch. It causes a great deal of, of, um, uh, of discomfort uh, in, our, in, our, in our minds. Um, in the most egregious cases, the case of the uh, you know, masturbating um, uh, flasher, um, though I think that we can say that, as in the case of voyeurism, that exhibitionism can constitute an infringement of a victim's sexual autonomy, that it is a, it is a kind of an intrusion into one's private space, uh, not in the sense that voyeurism is, but in a kind of reciprocal notion that um, I don't want to see your private matters you're showing this to me. It's intruding into my mental, uh, into my mental state. Um, all right. So I've been talking so far about the wrongs in both voyeurism and exhibitionism. I'm going to try to pick up the pace a little bit, if, I, if that's possible, and talk a little bit about harms in the two offenses. What harms do they cause? Because under the Feinbergian, Millian approach to criminalization, merely being wrongful is not going to be enough. That's enough for a legal moralist, but it's not enough for the liberal. The liberal requires that there be some harm or significant risk of harm. So what, what harms are there? Well, the harms of voyeurism, in some cases, are psychological harms. So to take a particularly awful case from the U.S. a couple of years ago, a rabbi in Washington, D.C. installed a camera in, uh, in a ritual bath uh, near his, uh, next to his synagogue and uh, filmed, videotaped uh, dozens of women who were using that uh, ritual bath for various purposes. 
Uh, the women later testified at his sentencing hearing. He didn't, he didn't get 52 years, as that slide says. I think he got something like 15 years. Uh, there were many, many defendants and many counts. The women testified uh, about how uh, the, 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 the psychological harms that they suffered as a result, including sleeplessness, depression, impaired relationships with romantic partners, neighbors, and colleagues, and, and shame that went along with those acts. Now, that's certainly, that, that may well be true in the most serious cases. Um, it's hard. Nobody's really done any studies to say specifically uh, how many, what percentage of victims of voyeurism uh, suffer these kinds of uh, uh, psychological harms. Another possibility would be that voyeurism is, is a preventive kind of harm. The notion is that uh, sometimes uh, potential rapists and uh, sexual assaulters use voyeurism as a sort of first step in the same way that uh, we see in the case of uh, people who engage in child grooming uh, or uh, failing to register as a sex offender or administering a substance with intent to commit a sexual offense under, the, uh, uh, under British law. Um, so that's a possibility, uh, but the link the empirical link between voyeurism and sexual assault really hasn't been established. There, isn't, there are no studies that have shown that there's any uh, statistically strong link between those, those acts. Another related kind of argument would be that if we have voyeurs and voyeurs in our community, it, it under, undermines a community's sense of privacy. You know, it means that you've got to close your, your blinds all the time because you're worried that people might be watching you. Um, that's, that is a, uh, an assault on the, on the community uh, more widely. But to me, the most interesting and significant problem in the case of criminalizing voyeurism from the perspective of the harm principle is the fact, as I said, that most victims of voyeurism don't know that they're victims of voyeurism. So they never have an opportunity to suffer the psychological harms that they do once they discover that they've been the victims of, uh, of harm, uh, that they've been the victims of this act. So we can, we, can, we can view that as potentially a harmless form of voyeurism. And if that's true, if there are harmless acts of voyeurism, then we have a problem from the criminalization perspective. Now, two um, notable uh, English scholars address this problem in the case, not of voyeurism, but in a more a hypothetical case of what they call harmless uh, or pure rape. John Gardner and Stephen Shute um, consider a case, a hypothetical case, in which a woman is unconscious, uh, is sexually assaulted or raped by a, an offender. Um, she never discovers that she was violated. He uses uh, contraception. She suffers no physical injury as a result. And she never, she just, it's essentially a non-event for her. Now, obviously, her rights have been seriously violated. Um, but under the harm principle, or at least one version of the harm principle, they say, uh, it's hard to see exactly how we're supposed to criminalize that act. That might be an argument against the harm principle, or there might be a way to satisfy the harm principle. So here's what they say. They say, there's no objection under the harm principle that a harmless action was criminalized, nor even that an action with no tendency to cause harm was criminalized. It is enough, they say, to meet the demands of the harm principle that if the action were not criminalized, that would be harmful. This test, they say, is passed by the pure case of rape with flying colors. If the act in this case were not criminalized, then assuming at least partial efficacy on the part of the law, people's rights to sexual autonomy would more often be violated. In other words, if you didn't criminalize the act, lots more people would be committing it. And that would be bad. Now, that's, I don't think that solves the problem. 
at least on one reading of what they're saying, all they're saying is, is that there would be more wrongful acts, but they're not saying necessarily that there would be more harmful acts. We might simply have more pure or so-called harmless rapes than we otherwise would. That's one reading of what they're saying, and I think it's probably the most literal reading of what they're saying. An alternative reading is that what they're saying is, no, actually, if we didn't criminalize those acts, there would be more genuinely harmful acts. And if that's the case, and if we could empirically show that to be the case, then the harm principle would be satisfied. So that, that may do it in the case of voyeurism. People might have questions about that. Okay. So I've been talking so far about the harm or lack of harm in the case of voyeurism. Now I want to talk about the harm or lack of harm in the case of exhibitionism. And the answer is, it's hard to see. We don't really have any empirical evidence to suggest that exhibitionism causes the kind of psychological harms that voyeurism uh, tends to cause. There might be some cases, but, uh, but we, just don't, we just don't really... We just don't know. One, um, one possibility is kind of a nuisance approach again. When you have somebody who engages in exhibitionism at a public event, you usually have to stop the game. You have to get the guy off the field. It's a nuisance, and uh, that's a kind of harm. Uh, that's the kind of harm that nuisance law is meant to, um, is meant to address. Another possible argument is, at least in the U.S. context on college campuses, where we've seen various kinds of streaking and uh, flashing, uh, that's sometimes viewed as a form of sexual harassment or misconduct that can cause a a hostile environment on campus, uh, similar to the workplace display of pornography uh, or uh, other kinds of uh, sexual harassment that occur uh, on campuses or in the workplace. Uh, so it's, it's certainly possible that exhibitionism could be used in that manner, and to the extent that it is, and to the extent that we want to criminalize that, that, those kinds of acts, which generally we don't, at least in the U.S., um, we, might, we might find a rationale there. But I think at the end of the day, we have to conclude that probably exhibitionism doesn't cause, doesn't tend to cause, at least as far as the data that we have now, doesn't tend to cause the kind of harms that voyeurism seems to cause at least in some victims. So Feinberg uh, has an alternative. If the harm principle isn't satisfied, then we can look to the offense principle, the idea that such behavior, even though it doesn't cause setbacks to interest, even though it's not causing sleeplessness and other kinds of psychological harms in its victims, that it, it, it nevertheless causes such a significant kind of offense that we ought at least to criminalize it in some cases. Oops. So Feinberg offers a famous ride on the bus uh, where he describes an incredibly imaginative uh, list, uh, description of just incredibly disgusting behaviors that people engage in, much worse than this, on a bus, including, I won't even begin to tell you, but um, I give my my students, I always have them read it, it's always one of the highlights of the semester when when we read it in the criminal law theory seminar. Um, and so he goes through the different kinds of offensive behavior and, 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 and considers what extent such behavior could be potentially subject to criminal sanctions. Basically, what he says is that it's sort of a, 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 a weighing test, that we have to weigh the seriousness of the conduct, uh, sorry, the seriousness of the offense to the victim against the reasonableness of the defendant's conduct. So did the defendant have some reason, some good reason for engaging in this conduct? How does that compare to the the degree of the offense that occurs? And it seems 
tailor-made for exhibitionism. Because there are, ah, talk about her in a moment. There are lots of different circumstances in which exhibitionism might be, there might be a good reason for people to engage in exhibitionism. Now, another problem with the offense principle is, is that people have different levels of toleration for offense. This woman apparently has a pretty low level of toleration. I'm not exactly sure what offended her, but uh, we, are all, we all have our own moments in which we're offended. They may not be universally shared. So how, does the, how should the criminal law with, deal with that? In addition, we have cultural differences, particularly in an area like uh, involving modesty, uh, what counts as uh, appropriate dress in uh, uh, Brazil is quite different from what counts as appropriate dress in Riyadh. Uh, so how should the law deal with those? So what we have uh, in the case of exhibitionism are, are so many different contexts in which something that would fall under one or more uh, uh, statutory provisions would constitute exhibitionism, ranging even from uh, breastfeeding in some American jurisdictions is still uh, prosecutable as uh, under exhibitionism laws, uh, as well as um, nudity at Mardi Gras in New Orleans, political protest, in this case the running of the nudes in Pamplona um, to protest the treatment of uh, the bulls. Uh, uh, we have in Times Square last summer in New York, we had the denudas who were uh, going nude so they could, uh, the tourists could take their pictures uh, for a few dollars. And, uh, of course, the famous naked rambler who um, walked his way across England over the course of several years uh, in the last, uh, early in the last decade. So which, if any, of these behaviors should we treat as criminal? Well, I see that I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to be able to give you a very complete answer to that, but I'm going to at least raise a couple of uh, kinds of uh, concerns or a couple of factors that I would want to consider. Uh, specifically for One, we would need to consider the extent to which the uh, victim consented to or assumed the risk of such behavior. So, uh, second, the, we need to look at the intent of the actor. Did the actor intend to offend someone? Did the actor intend to gratify sexual desire? Or do we have a statute that doesn't require any kind of intent? Uh, thirdly, we would need to look to the value to the offender or to society more generally of the behavior? And finally, were there alternative times and places that the uh, exhibitionist might have? So I'm not going to have time to go through all of them in any kind of detail. I'll just sort of whiz through them uh, quickly. Uh, assumption of risk. Certainly, if you take a nude, uh, uh, if you take a, a, a live uh, studio art class where you have nude models, you've obviously assumed the risk or even consented to seeing nudity. Um, if you see a sign to a nude beach and you go beyond the sign, arguably you've assumed the risk that you're going to encounter nude sunbathers. Uh, if you go to the movies and you see this notice, you've seemed to have assumed the risk. If you go to Mardi Gras in New Orleans, um, in the French Quarter, you've probably assumed the risk that you're going to see some, some nudity. Um, this is a little bit harder case. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, because I'm running out of time, I'm going to skip. Uh, if you go to a concert by some uh, people like Jim Morrison of The Doors, uh, who was prosecuted for 
uh, indecent exposure. You might expect that you would see uh, nudity. But some cases, people don't consent or assume the risk. Um, does that mean that the defendant's going to lose? Well, not necessarily. Because even if there's, neither, there's been neither consent nor uh, an assumption of risk, I think we still need to ask what the intent of the offender was. Um, was, it, was there an intent to gratify sexual desire, an intent to cause affront, or do we have a, a, a strict liability regime? And I'm going to really running out of time. Uh, we would also need to ask the value to the exposer. Lady Godiva achieved something really significant with her, her, her nudity. Um, these political protesters use nudity as a means for protesting the war in Iraq or the, the mistreatment of uh, uh, the bulls in Pamplona. Uh, it's hard to imagine any circumstance in which um, nursing a baby could ever possibly not uh, be protected. Two final issues in the last minute and a half that I have. Um, what do we do with the um, susceptibility, idiosyncratic susceptibility, if you will, to offense? What do we do with people who are hypersensitive to uh, uh, offense? If you have the misfortune to go nude and run into such a person, you might well offend that person, and you might offend that person in a serious way. Should the law take account of that? Well, probably not. Probably we ought to have something like a reasonableness standard. Um, we ought to say that, that only if the victim's distress was reasonably foreseeable from the perspective of the offender should it be uh, the basis for a criminal prosecution. The final issue is cultural variation. What do we do about the, with the fact that in a pluralistic society, such as in Britain or in the United States, we have different, very different standards from neighborhood to neighborhood, from community to community about what's considered decent and not? How do we deal with that? And there are three different, or four different approaches, sorry, three different approaches that I would conclude with. First, we could say that we ought to enforce the law in such a way that it protects even the most sensitive people in society. So somebody who would be offended by seeing a woman with bare shoulders or uh, bare legs, uh, that the law ought to be enforced in such a way to protect those people. Alternatively, we might say we want to protect the majority's sensibility. So if most people would be offended to see a naked person walking around Times Square, um, then we ought to criminalize that. Alternatively, we might, we might say that we should enforce the law only in cases in which all but the most insensitive would be offended. So we're going to enforce the law only for the person, against the person, say, who's masturbating on uh, the London Underground or on a New York City bus. That presumably would offend almost everybody. There might be some people who have a very, very high tolerance for, uh, for offense. Uh, and I'm just going to make a normative judgment. I'm not, I don't have an argument for it, but that in a liberal, pluralistic society such as ours, we ought to use the criminal law sparingly, and we ought to apply exhibitionist laws only to cases in which all but the most insensitive would be offended. Um, so we're not going to use those laws very much, we're going to err on the side of uh, tolerance, if you will. And I think I'm out of time.
Thank you very much indeed, Stuart. I mean, you whizzed through an extraordinary range of issues there on which I, I, I could ask you any one of a number of questions, I'm sure. Uh, but it was a, 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 both a, a coherent and a, a cogent and a fascinating analysis for which we're, we're all extremely grateful, I'm sure. Now, uh, there is always at these occasions time for some questions, I believe. Um, what, is our, uh, what is our cut-off time for questions? Do we know? Uh, well, let, let's see how we go. Um, okay, so uh, if, if I do a little bit of um, moderation, then Stuart can take your questions. Would, um, who would like to uh, get us going? I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to end up being the inquisitor. So uh, yes, uh, could you just wait? Could you um, perhaps say uh, what your affiliation is here, whether you're a student or a member of the public or whatever it may be, and then uh, use the microphone? Thank you. Um, member of the public. Um, so I noticed there was a picture of a woman breastfeeding right. on your um, PowerPoint. I want to know um, how you would personally categorise that um, in the sense of horrorism uh, and exhibitionism. How would you right. categorise cat- So if you look at, you have to look at how the statutes are defined. And in many jurisdictions, a surprisingly high number of jurisdictions, merely uh, exposing a breast in a public place regardless of what your intent is, even if you have no intent to uh, offend anybody, even if you have no intent to obtain sexual gratification, uh, would, at least as a matter of the literal application of the statute, could lead to uh, prosecution. And, and we've seen cases of that sort. Um, now, I, you know, that's not to say that uh, the district attorney or the, the local prosecutor might not uh, exercise discretion not to pursue those cases. Um, but uh, we, we see from time to time, particularly in sort of the Bible Belt in the U.S., where uh, women uh, publicly breastfeed their babies, and sometimes it causes, sometimes they're prosecuted, or sometimes there's uh, an outcry about it. So, um, you know, I mean, the problem is, the obvious problem is that the, the exposure is so minimal. Um, it's hard to see how you would even observe uh, very much flesh, if you will, uh, when a, a mother is breastfeeding. So it's, um, it just seems like a, a very poor application of, this, of, of the statute. Yes. Uh, yep, yep. Sure. Um, well, uh, well, first you perhaps, and then your neighbour. If you just say, say um, what your affiliation is, and uh, then... Uh, um, I'm not affiliated with the university. I'm actually a sixth form student in London, member of the public. Um, I was just wondering, given the nature of voyeurism, you know, the fact it's so covert and surreptitious and furtive, mm. how do cases such as, um, you know, the case of the peeping Tom, how do they come to light? How are they brought forward as cases? Well, it's a good question. It's, you know, I assume that some are, are never brought to light. So, uh, um, these days, um, from what I, I, I've gathered from what I've read, um, we see more cases of video voyeurism. So the case of the rabbi that I showed you, he had, he, he had placed a, a, a hidden camera in this shower room at this uh, ritual bath. Uh, and many, many months went by before it was discovered. Finally, someone discovered it. We had a case uh, in the town where I live in New Jersey that was at a, a local uh, restaurant, I think, in a, in a restroom they discovered a camera. So that's one way. But it may be that people are you know, looking at their neighbors and we would never really know that. Uh, so as a practical matter, the case might not be prosecuted. It's also possible that you, know, you might look out your window and see one of your neighbors looking at a third party. Um, so even though the victim might not be aware of it, there might be an observer who sees the voyeur. The other, the other uh, fact is that um, sometimes the voyeurs 
um, in, themselves engage in, a, in, in public masturbation or something like that in a park. Uh, and so there's a, there's a good amount of uh, um, uh, uh, commission of both offenses in the same, in the same person. The same person is both uh, acting as an exhibitionist and as a voyeur. Um, so um, uh, that, that seems to be, according to the mental health experts, these behaviors are also related to each other in terms of the way they're committed. Yes. Hello, I, I work for LSE, but I'm not uh, affiliated to the law department. Um, I'm interested in kind of the, the combination of the digital and the voyeuristic. I was wondering if in instances where, um, for example, celebrities have had pictures leaked uh, to the internet, obviously that, that's got the potential to cause a lot of psychological harm, but um, there's almost no capacity to point at individual people who viewed those pictures online and say, you know, you are the person that has caused this psychological harm because it's more like the scale of it. Mm. Um, is there any, have you any sort of solutions to, to who there is causing the harm or what the, the law might say? Right, so, so there's sort of two different um, circumstances in which um, these kinds of cases arise. One is involving celebrities. So somebody, a celebrity has a private photo and somehow someone, I think this happened last year or within the last couple of years, hacked into a private account and then published those pictures. Um, so, uh, you know, sometimes you can prosecute the, the website where it appears or the, or the service on which the, the pictures appeared. But you're right, you're quite right. It's going to be very difficult to find individual um, lawyers, if you will. There are also really disturbing cases in which um, relationships go sour. So originally the pictures were exchanged with consent. Uh, and then after, typically after the relationship goes uh, bad, uh, the jilted um, uh, partner, uh, typically the man, uh, in a heterosexual relationship, posts the pictures online, and then um, and that's viewed by you know any number of, of people. And those cases have led to the adoption of a, a lot of new legislation in the U.S. Um, and quite a few prosecutions. Uh, so there you have a specific defendant the person who posted the pictures, you can prosecute him. The question is whether what you're going to do with all the other maybe hundreds, thousands of people who were viewing the pictures um, who may have known there was consent or, or may not. Um, you know, you're going to have to establish that as a, as a factual matter as well. Uh, Joe and Peter are on my list, but can we, can we just take one here from the gentleman on the... Uh, if you just say who, what your affiliation is and then ask a question. Thank you very much. I'm a member of the public. and Just... Uh, Slight, slightly um, at a tangent, but very important to me, was the issue of privacy. Now, <clears throat> this country apparently has ten times as many cameras around as other countries in Europe, for example. Uh, now, I know a lot of people accept this. They're very happy with it, very comfortable with it. I feel very uneasy seeing cameras around, particularly if in places where, for example, on a train station, a voice booms out to say, would the passenger, blah, 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 please stand away from the platform, away from the track, or would you please keep an eye on your bike, or look after... And they are directed. So you, can, you feel that people are actually observing you uh, actively in real time, 
and I know enough about Nazi Germany, about East Germany, uh, about totalitarian regimes to worry about that and to feel very uneasy. So I feel a lot easier in another country where this isn't the case. I just wonder if you could comment generally about this public surveillance as, as almost a form of voyeurism, at least as, uh, in my, 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 my feeling. Thanks. Right. So, um, well, a couple of observations. I mean, one is that, you know, you're sort of, there's one sense in which we're using voyeurism as sort of the cultural sense that I identified at the very beginning of my presentation, the notion that we live in a voyeuristic society. So whether it's the government watching people's uh, behavior or people, you know, uh, watching reality TV shows or getting on, you know, the websites uh, and peering into other people's lives, there's a kind of voyeuristic quality. And you've pointed to kind of the voyeurism of the government. Um, but I think the specific relevance for this analysis is, you know, how do those changing practices affect uh, our norms and our expectation of privacy? So if it's the case that you're always under surveillance, then in a sense you don't have an expectation of privacy anymore. Um, I was in the tube the other night, and I think they actually announced, they said that, uh, you know, please note that you are under surveillance, that, that the cameras, CCTVs are being used in the, in the underground. So once you hear that, now you sort of are on notice that, well, I don't have privacy anymore. So if that's the case, then that's going to affect the, uh, uh, the question whether this behavior, whether the place in which the exposure or the uh, observation occurred is a private place. And that's going to be, I mean, privacy is not a, some kind of you know, absolute concept. It's a relative concept. It's going to be determined by cultural, what, what the culture or what the law regards as being uh, a private, private interest. So I think you pointed to a, an instance in which government behavior tends to reduce our expectation of privacy. And the question is, how, how much are we willing to tolerate that? You know, we've had a great debate about that in the U.S. with the NSA surveillance, the National Security Agency. How much, how much are we willing to tolerate until we're, you know, ready to push back. And norms, norms vary. Sometimes people say, well, you know, keep me safe from terrorism, and uh, I don't care how much you uh, view me on CCTV. I, I, I don't... Uh, it, seems like, it seems like there's been something of a generational shift. It seems like people have less of a sense of the significance and the importance of privacy. They seem to, in some ex to some extent, indifferent to privacy. Why else would people post naked pictures of themselves online or ex expose their most private kinds of thoughts on their, you know, Facebook pages. It's, we seem to be undergoing something of a cultural shift. And once we sort that out, then we can sort of decide, okay, what should the law, and how should the law follow those, those shifting norms? But in a, in, a, in a liberal society, I think, you know, we need to be very cautious about... Uh, criminalizing behavior um, where there's, there's such a variety of, um, of norms and uh, such a, a varying tolerance for intrusion in people's lives. Okay, well now, I'm gonna, I, uh, sorry, I'm just going to let the, uh, uh, the legal experts have a bit of a bash, if I may. So could we start with Joe in the, in, in the front here? Uh, thanks very much. Um, 
Hi, uh, my name is Joe Merkins. I'm from the Law Department. Um, I felt that your lecture focused on nudity from an individual uh, perspective and from a private perspective. So you're talking about individual acts of um, exhibitionism which were intended to shock or were about um, sexual gratification. Mm. But isn't there another type of nudity which is public and political? I'm thinking of the Femen movement or Pussy Riot in Russia or, or even the World Naked Bike Ride where uh, the intention is not to, to shock for, for the sake of shocking but to, it's part of a broader political debate. Um, you didn't cover that at all, but should it be covered or is that a separate um, aspect of uh, right. nudity? So I didn't really get to my normative argument, uh, which... I was, I was doing more sort of trying to set the framework, but my, my normative argument would say that, we, that only those cases in which someone actually intends to cause serious affront should be eligible for criminalization. Now, um, so I had, a, I had a slide, I sort of whizzed right by it, but I had a slide of a, of a couple in the park. Um, now, they might have a desire, they might have a desire or an intent to, to set, gratify sexual desire, uh, and that, in many jurisdictions, would be sufficient to satisfy the statute. I mean, the, the problem is we have basically three different formulations of exhibitionism. One requires an intent to gratify sexual desire. A second requires an intent to cause affront. And a third requires neither of those. It's a strict liability provision. Okay? So under a strict liability law, it doesn't matter what your intent is. Theoretically, even if you have, you're a political protester and you go naked, uh, it doesn't matter whether you intend to gratify sexual desire. It doesn't even matter whether you intend to cause affront. You could be liable under the statute. Um, I think that's wrong for many of the reasons that strict liability is wrong uh, in other contexts. Um, and I don't think we should really, of course, we shouldn't criminalize uh, indecent exposure or exhibitionism in that way. In terms of the uh, intent to gratify sexual desire, it's hard to see in a liberal system why that's really relevant. The fact that people want to gratify their sexual desire is a good thing. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, not, a, it's not an incriminating factor. If anything, it's exculpatory. If people go into the park and want to have sex in the park, then why does a liberal society have any interest in controlling that? That's what the whole, our whole sexual revolution has been about. It's the intent to cause affront that's potentially relevant to the liberal. Now, the political protester does want to cause affront. The political protester does want to shake up things. The political protester does want to challenge the status quo. Um, so, at least potentially, the political protester could be covered by, uh, there could be a prima facie case against the political protester. However, there are the countervailing considerations. If the political protester has a, an interest in promoting a particular political uh, agenda, or there's, and there's no other place where the political protester could engage in that conduct, uh, then, then maybe the political protester would have a good defense there. But under the language of the statutes, as we currently see them, um, the political protester would, there would at least be a prima facie case against the political protester. Um, and I, I think that, but under the sort of nuisance weighing cost-benefit analysis that Feinberg talks about, um, we might well say, well, even though there is a front, even though there is an intent to cause uh, an affront, there are countervailing justifications for not criminalizing that conduct. Peter. Um, 
Peter Ramsey from the Law Department uh, as well. Um, Stuart, I suppose I'll, I'll put it to you. Uh, and it slightly picks up on the earlier comment about CCTV and privacy. Everything you've told us seems to me to suggest that the harm and the offence principles are not um, necessarily good uh, rationales for thinking about criminalisation in this context because it is so difficult to find Right. For, for both voyeurism and exhibitionism? Well, or? it's difficult to find harm in both cases, and, and, right. and the difficulties of fence is such a slippery, fluid um, uh, political um, category. Whereas, you kind of, you, you mentioned the right to privacy, going back to, to uh, an older view, but then pass over it, which is odd if what you're pursuing is a liberal conception, because it would seem to me that liberalism... Uh, rests on the idea of the separateness of persons. It rests on the proposition that we, we are not um, a, a, the communities that the ancients were or that, or that uh, hunter-gatherer communities are, that there's something distinctive about modern societies in which we are separate persons. And the, the concept that, therefore, there's a private sphere, which belongs... I mean, as you said, when the camera's looking at you, you know the camera's looking at you, you know that you're not in that private sphere, just as the peeping Tom... Uh, strips you of that, that private sphere, and that that's fundamental uh, in a liberal society, that the existence of some space that's your own, that can't be uh, uh, surveyed either by the state or, or by other people, it, it might be culturally fundamental to a liberal state, so that that right would exist or be important independently of whether anyone was harmed when it was violated. Um, so, uh, and important enough to, to, to justify a criminal offence. And then the other way around, um, liber without privacy, there's no public space either, really. Pri you know, the public-private divide, the, the two spheres are, uh, are dependent on each other. So the problem with exhibitionism, the problem with you, and here I think I disagree with you, I'm not happy about two people having sex in the park, mm -hmm. uh, to, to be honest, because they've brought the private world they brought the private into the... It's no longer public. The disquietude is I'm no longer in a public space. Suddenly I'm in your bedroom. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know, I, I didn't want to be in your bedroom. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the point is that that's no longer public space now. Mm -hmm. um, and so the public-private the public -private divide, which is crucial to... Now, we could say liberalism's wrong, we're not interested. But those rights, independent of any harm or offence that's done, um, a rights-based account of the criminal law would better explain seems to me why, why we would maintain those. I, I grant you that most exhibitionism is going to be minor. It's like littering. It's like a, it's an aggravated form right. of littering. It's a minor nuisance. Obviously, there are some more serious flashing, but, but that's what's, it's the public-private divide and the rights that are around that seem to be fundamental to liberalism. Right. So I don't think that I'm saying there isn't a right. I don't think I have, I'm denying a rights-based approach. What I'm saying is part of the problem is that, that violations of privacy... Uh, at least in Anglo-American law, are not regularly criminalized. We tend to treat them as civil wrongs rather than crimes. So the question is, what's special about voyeurism that would distinguish it from other more mundane violations of privacy? Um, and one possibility is that it's a, it's, it tends to be sexual privacy. Now, I didn't talk about sort of non-sexual voyeurism. If you watch through my window as I play the piano or uh, meditate or, you know, do yoga, um, I guess you're violating my privacy, but it doesn't seem as significant as the, the violation that, ago, that occurs in the case of um, watching me while I'm um, having sex or walking around naked. 
So we can, we, you know, we have to, so one possibility is that the particularly sexual aspect of it sort of adds to the gravity of the violation, uh, the, the privacy violation. Um, but I think we need an explanation for what's special about this. And sort of as part of my l- more global theory of sexual, the sexual offenses, I want to think about sexual in, uh, violation of sexual privacy and sexual autonomy as being central to both uh, uh, voyeurism and exhibitionism. That I, t- I tend to think about sexual autonomy as sort of a bundle of rights of different different aspects of sexuality that are that the law ought to protect. Um, regarding exhibitionism, so we might distinguish between cases of mere nudity and uh, actual sexual uh, acts. So perhaps walking around the park naked would be less offensive, other things being equal, than people actually having intercourse uh, in Hyde Park. Uh, and if that's the case, then you know, that simply goes on the scales of the degree of the, of the seriousness of the offense. That seems to be, your intuition is one that I think a lot of people share. I suppose I share it. Uh, I mean, I'm willing to tolerate a fairly high level of uh, nudity, um, but I'm not, I, I do think that once you start having public sex in public places, then maybe you've crossed the line into something that, that really does have the potential. So that may be the sort of the final slide. Um, maybe we would draw the line, I don't know where, we might differ with respect to where we would draw the line. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I get different reactions about the Naked Rambler. I mean, I, I view, from what I can tell about the Naked Rambler, he seems rather harmless, kind of a bit self-absorbed and, and, and kind of ridiculous. But uh, I've had some quite enlightened people who say, no, you know, he's, that, uh, he's incorrigible and uh, they really should have put him away because he just, you know, partly because he's so defiant and he just kept doing it. Every time he got locked up, they let him out and he did it again. Maybe that's part of what colors... That uh, that case, um, but I but I would say you know if the naked ram- now if the naked rambler is walking across the moors or wherever he was walking that's one thing if he's if he's riding the tube, and then we have the problem of children being there so that's going to complicate things and I've sort of set that aside, so we don't want our children to be exposed to some things that adults might be tolerant of so that that's a complicating factor, um, so again the context is going to matter a lot um, if he's going into uh, you know, Parliament, uh, the galley or whatever at Parliament, or whatever the the the, the lecture at the LSE, then you know that's going to be disruptive. You're not going to. It's going to be hard for anybody to concentrate on what the esteemed lecturer is talking about if someone is walking around, uh, you know, naked. Um, so it's very context specific. Okay, well, thank you. Well, at least the naked rambler had his hat on. We're grateful for some small nurses. Uh, Nikki. Thank you very much for the lecture, Stuart. And, and my, um, my question really follows on from the last few. Yeah. Um, and it may be that my, my sort of take on this is affected by the fact that I spent a chunk of my life living in a little-known city called Berlin, where every public lake, bathing lake, had an, a you know, nude bathing bit, which was not in any way um, you know, shaded off. And it's just a reminder of how incredibly contingent these norms are. Right. Really, my, 
My, and in fact, yeah, including, you know, basically the lake that's at the end of the Berlin equivalent of Oxford Street, leading with marvellous experience of you were a sort of embarrassed Brit like me. At, right. Up the other end of the lake, you would look at the gleaming spars of Oxford Street and see, you know, a marvellous variety of naked body shapes ambling around in the water a few yards away. Um, I think my question really is, are these two categories either separately all taken together really in any meaningful sense unitary categories or meaningful categories that we can sort of put together. I found myself, I mean, it's really in a way following on from the CCTV thing when we think about voyeurism. You know, how much is the motivation having to do with something to do with either sexual gratification or some kind of titillation? Um, is that really, does that really matter? I mean, it, does that make it a, a, a sufficiently different thing to be worth analysing separately? And conversely, uh, an example I don't think anybody has mentioned yet, when we think about the um, you know, the exhibitionism category, be, being confronted with images that you find difficult or disquieting or offensive, I mean, what about violence? You know, we live in a world, again, where there are loads of you know, different sensibilities and different norms about this. I personally loathe, you know, when I go to the cinema, I try terribly hard to get there after the trailers for all those ghastly films in which people seem to be having great fun beating each other up. Are those, do they raise really different, you know, if we're going to use the fine bird category, is there really anything special about these cases or are they just, you know, examples that we apply these general principles to. So if I understand the question, what, what's distinctively, why is this part of a project on the sexual offenses? Yeah. Why isn't this... We really got, you know, what was the element that really makes these cases together? Right. Um, hmm. Well, um, I mean, I think the one problem is that um, the, 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 the statutes as currently defined don't really, don't always, don't consistently identify the sexual element. Um, so we have, we just have a problem of the, the, the fact that the offenses are defined in different ways. Um, but I think in the, I keep coming back to the notion that the core cases are ones that um, involve sexual behavior or sexual privacy. Um, I don't. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure what more I can say about that. I mean, I think that um, we we have a sort of clash in some cases of, if not rights. Uh, I mean, we, 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 at least um, interests that people have. Um, so people have an interest in, uh, again, um, displaying their sexuality. That, that's, a, that's a way to express your sexuality is to go naked or to have sex in the park. Um, that's, I, I would think that people, that, that, that's, a, that's a significant um, right that people have or at least a prima facie right that they have. How do, but in a liberal society, we have conflicts between uh, that right and the right not to be confronted with 
somebody else's sexuality. So it's, it's you know, very much the task of theorists and legislators to, and courts sometimes to try to find a balance or find a way that we can, we can uh, resolve those conflicts. Uh, in voyeurism, I think it's a little less clear, the idea that we have a right, I mean, we do have a right to see our lovers naked in some sense. Is that a right? Um, but um, it's, it's a little bit, you know, there, there's a significant asymmetry there. I think that the, the exhibitionism presents the conflict more squarely. Um, but in what sense is it sexual? I, I don't know. I'm not sure what more I can say. It just seems like um, sex is pretty core, is pretty close to the core of the, the way we define ourselves, the way we... Um, the way we uh, define our, our, our most private and intimate aspects of our lives, that sex, sex is there, and we need, we need sometimes when conflicts arise, we need a way to, uh, you know, to regulate that. Um, but either I think I've done what you want me to do or I'm not understanding the question. But we can talk more about it. <laughs> Okay, well, at, at this point, I'm going to, at this point of the evening, I'm going to say that if you have a question, can you just ask that question? Um, in other words, no lengthy preamble. Um, uh, okay. Now, um, sorry, can I just um, take one from the la- lady there? If you could just wait for the um, microphone, then say what your affiliation is, and then you can ask your question. My, my affiliation is I'm Professor Green's wife, Jennifer, um, and I'm, I'm not a lawyer. But I do have a, a real question, which is to the degree... Short preamble to the degree that usually you don't like to talk about this stuff. I, I do tonight, <laughs> however, to the degree that all law in all society from the get-go, from the yeah. beginning of, of 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 legal systems, have have been largely about keeping a lid on bad stuff, uh-huh. so that members of society can live it in some peace with each other, and so that trade can go on in in some peaceful, productive way. From that point of view, what is, why is the motivation of the perpetrator mm. interesting or relevant at all to the law? So, you know, to give an obvious example, back to the rabbi in Washington who was spying on the women in the mikvah, mm-hmm. he could say, I mean, I don't know what he said, but he could say, for example, well, you know, God... Yahweh spoke to me in my dreams and said that I needed to understand the full femininity of my female uh, uh, congregants, and um, this, is, this was my quiet way of doing so. So his motivation could then be, you know, for example, but, mm-hmm. there, but, but, but private motivation is such a private, personal, kind of psychically charged um, event to okay. begin with. So why, why, should, why do we look at the motivation well, of mean, the perpetrator? It well, doesn't seem to get us anywhere. Yeah. Um, I mean, we need to, sometimes the criminal law distinguishes between motives and, and intent. We don't need to get too bogged down in that. But the short answer is that, you know, the purpose of the criminal law, at, at, from a retributive perspective, if you think that the purpose of punishment is to punish people who are, uh, who have done wrongful acts, and not everyone agrees with that, but that, that or at least that wrongfulness culpability is a constraint that we shouldn't punish people who haven't uh, who, who haven't uh, done a wrongful act 
then to determine whether an act is wrongful or not or culpable, um, we need to know something about the person's intent or possibly the person's motivation. Uh, so um, there's a difference, you know, as Oliver Wendell Holmes said, that even a dog knows the difference between, you know, being kicked and, and being stumbled upon. So that, that the, the intent matters very much there uh, in terms of we don't punish people who stumble on dogs, but we might punish someone who kicks the dog. So if the rabbi... Um, I don't know, I mean, your hypothetical is a little bit fanciful, but uh, if it was a misguided, if he had no intent to invade someone's privacy but merely wanted to make sure that nobody was stealing from the kitty or something like that and didn't consider the possibility that he was infringing on someone's privacy, that might be relevant in, uh, in determining whether his act was wrongful and therefore subject to uh, retributive punishment. So... Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's very much the, the, motiv- the motivation, or at least the intent of the offender, is absolutely central to criminal uh, liability. Can I just uh, come back to you? Because I, I want to try and give everyone a chance to, um, to, to get their question. So, um, now remember uh, the ban on preambles. Now, not easy to observe, I grant you, but it's a test of your ingenuity. Manolis. <laughs> My name is Malisaris from the law department here, uh, without preambles. I wonder whether something can be said, or, or, or the story of voyeurism can be said in terms of um, domination or interference with the freedom of, uh, of others, uh, which is not the same as privacy. So one might go to a nudist beach with hundreds of others, so they've given up on their privacy you know, pretty conclusively, but it's still interference of the way in which they make their image available to others if a peeping tom is with binoculars, you know, uh, uh, you know, somewhere else and, and uh, peeps on them. So, so I wonder whether that might account for, for the wrongfulness of, uh, uh, of voyeurism. Uh, now, as to what might account for the fact that it's being criminalized whereas, uh, on nude people, uh, whereas not on people just going about the, their everyday lives playing the piano, uh, we might find other... So historical explanations for it, or even conceptual ones, but uh, their, their wrongfulness might be told in terms of domination or interference with freedom. Right. I mean, uh, you know, there are a lot of alternative accounts. Domination has, I've always found it somewhat problematic, um, uh, sort of concept and its role in the criminal law. You know, George Fletcher talks about domination as the explanation for black, the blackmail paradox. Um, I think you know we live in a society, in a, in, a, in a capitalistic society, where people dominate other people, um, and you know the the management class dominate the proletariat to some degree, um, and you know so which kinds of forms of domination are going to be criminal uh, or acceptable, and which are not? Um, I, I you know I, I just think that's one of those concepts that you could develop an account, but it's not. It's, it, it's not the most, it's a kind of a generic account, and I'm trying to offer something of a more specific account. Um, that, and and maybe, this is, maybe this is the problem that Nikki has, that she doesn't really see what's specifically sexual about it, but I'm trying to offer an account that fits into a broader uh, uh, explanation for the sexual offenses specifically. So maybe I've got sex on the brain too much, and I keep coming back to that. But... Um, the idea of domination, the idea of um, um, objectification sometimes is, is, is another concept. 
I mean, I think those are alternative accounts, and you could develop uh, you could develop a fuller account of what those things mean in this context. Um, but but I think that uh, to me the, the idea of infringement of sexual autonomy seems more um, tailor made to this this concept because I think there are I just think that objectification has a kind of generic or domination rather has a kind of generic quality to it. Okay, well now according to the guide for speakers, which I've been reading actually while you've been answering your questions, um, it says here, please note that unless you are being physically threatened, it is important that you keep control of the microphone. So, <laughs> now, um, so unless anyone positively threatens me physically uh, and grasps the microphone, um, uh, unless I'm going to interpret that as being, you have a burning question that you cannot leave this room without asking. Uh, I'm going to allow one more question you, sir, um, uh, if you could just state your affiliation and then ask your question. I'm a member of the public and a lawyer. I just wanted to ask whether one could look at the curtailment of exhibitionism in the same way as we look at the curtailing of free speech. Admirably succinct. Thank you. Right. So um, in, the, uh, in this case involving the Times Square nudist, um, you know, that, that case was decided by the New York courts um, on the basis of a free speech uh, constitutional sort of defense. So they, they basically said that this statute under which they were being prosecuted was unconstitutional, unconstitutional infringement of their speech. The courts ultimately concluded that um, that the interestingly the infringement, the free speech infringement applied only for non-commercial purposes. So, so if you're out protesting the war in Iraq or the running of the bulls, then you would you would be protected under New York state law. If you're there, if you're being nude because you want to make money from tourists, you're not. Now, I think that's, that's problematic. Um, I think people have an interest in uh, making a living, and if this is a way that people make a living. But it, uh, I'm not sure that we want to necessarily limit free speech rights in that way. But, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a sort of different analysis. There may well be, uh, we can put a constitutional spin on it. Um, but it goes to more generically the idea that the the exposer has a, a personal interest or a social interest in, in being nude. So a person who is protesting, uh, who is a political protester and using nudity in that, uh, using that as a means to express a, a political point of view would weigh rather heavily in my scales in terms of um, the, the cost-benefit analysis of uh, against the offensiveness of the behavior. So it sort of fits into the calculus that way. Okay, well, I'm going to allow one burning question, if anyone has such a question. Um, going? Go, ah, gentleman at the front here. Yes, declare your affiliation and ask your burning question, okay? You have the right. All right, so I'm a member of the public. Uh, there is this website online which is legal where anyone is allowed to look at public cameras in the UK. And now some of these cameras have access to people's uh, front yards or backyards, um, but it's, it's, it's legal to look at them. Could this in a way be, be considered legal voyeurism, even though you're looking at someone's private property where they could possibly be doing private things? Well, if the camera was aimed at your window and you could look through the window uh, at activities that were going on inside, then uh, that sounds rather problematic if it's if it's on your private front yard i think a, a different kind of 
rule might apply in that case. Um, so, you know, in, under U.S. constitutional law, um, basically anything that occurs um, in your front yard or is visible from above um, is not going to be subject to the protections of the Fourth Amendment, the, the right to be free from unreasonable searches by the government. Um, that's, a, that's another can of worms, but, the, but I think there would be a distinction between things that occur behind the walls, things that occur out front. Although there is an interesting case, I think from Virginia, involving a guy who was parading around naked in his own house in front of a window, and some kids walked by and they saw him and they told their parents, and the guy was actually prosecuted for exhibitionism even though he was inside his own home. Uh, and the case went to trial, and the jury acquitted him, and he made the argument that, uh, you know, he was in his own home. How could he be an exhibitionist? And the court, the court at least entertained the possibility that, it, to the extent that you're doing it in front of a window and people might walk by your window, that even in your own home you could potentially be uh, an exhibitionist. So again, this notion of what's private and what's not is not a very definite one. It's, it's a very context-specific kind of notion. Um, and similarly, somebody could be in a public space, but they might enjoy some kind of privacy if, if the public space was sufficiently protected, um, guarded. Okay, yes, well, it's the same rule in English law, actually, much castigated by Glanville Williams, amongst others. Um, but anyway, um, and you're right about the public, um, the public area, actually, although not in the sexual context, because the, there's a rule of... Um, undercover agency that you can't sit behind someone on a bus and record their conversation mm. because you're entitled even on a bus to some degree of privacy mm. well it says here remember the degree of heckling is allowed but not <laughs> if it continually disrupts the speaker well you have been uh, you've been extraordinarily uh, respectful courteous and at the same time very engaged audience and I'm, I'm sure Stuart has profited greatly uh, from these questions and uh, thank you all very much for coming and for all your contributions particularly if I may say uh, from the members of the public who I thought have um, really uh, uh, given some very uh, interesting questions very to the point questions uh, and I'm particularly grateful to you so uh, but thank you very much to everybody.